God of wisdom, by your spirit, may your word be proclaimed so that we may know good news in our hearts and minds and so that we will bear witness to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in word and in deed. Now quiet in us any voice but yours so that we may hear your word for us today. Amen. Well, today we continue our series on what disciples do. Not what disciples believe, but on what disciples do. Today we'll consider how disciples seek people for Christ and for church. Our reading is from the 15th chapter of Luke, the first 10 verses. And again, this week I'm reading from that common English Bible, that new translation. All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose someone among you had 100 sheep and lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one? until he finds it. And when he finds it, he is thrilled and places it on his shoulders. When he arrives home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Celebrate with me, because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. Or what woman, if she owns ten silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Celebrate with me, because I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes, changes both heart and life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Lord, may our thoughts and may my words be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing at this time 15 years ago on 9-11? Well, like many people, I was trying to track down a friend who was caught up in that day's horrific tragedy. He had been my friend and fraternity brother in college, and in 2001, he was also my broker. He sent me an email from his office in the World Trade Center just before the first plane struck, crashing into his building. I could not reach him by phone, so I tried emailing 
his company's New Jersey office where they said they did not have news yet and they asked for prayers. And I'll confess to you, it was, it was probably the first time I'd ever prayed for my broker. <laughs> During that time, I thought about our, our phone conversation the day before on 9-10, that Monday. He and I talked about, he told me about how wonderful the Monet exhibit was at a museum in Baltimore. And at that time I was thankful that if this had to be our last conversation ever, we hadn't talked about money or stocks, we had talked about art and what that meant in life. Then about noon or so, he sent me a an email from his home in Manhattan saying that he had crawled through debris in the hallway outside his office on the 22nd floor, descended the 22 flights of stairs, and eventually took the subway home before that tower fell. He told me he was probably going to go fishing. <laughs> he had bought a car. Living, I said, why would anybody want a car in Manhattan? He said, if you live in Manhattan, you've got to have a way to get out of town. And he bought a car specifically designed so he could put on his hip waders even in the rain <laughs> and be covered. Well, I was so blessed that my friend was home safe, but thousands and thousands were not so blessed. For weeks after those attacks, the streets of New York were plastered with homemade posters begging for information about loved ones who were lost the day of those attacks. Now, those haunting posters showed smiling pictures of mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers, co-workers and friends whose lives had been snatched from them, but whose families had desperate hope that somehow they might be found safe. Somehow. Jill Duffield is the uh, editor of the Presbyterian Outlook magazine, and this week she wrote about a similar account of family searching for people they loved after they were lost in the tsunami that killed tens of thousands of people in Japan. The story of their sad searches ended with this sentence. The world never looks as big as when someone is lost. Jesus Christ said that he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus loves us and all of humanity more faithfully, more resiliently, more persistently, more intensely, more than we can ever imagine. Now last week we started our focus on discipleship with a warning that you can you can be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but it will cost you. Today we consider our first job duty as disciples, and that is seeking the lost. Now before you go saying, wait a minute, preacher, ain't that your job? <laughs> well, it is, but let me remind you of the last words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, Jesus came to them and said, 
I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go to the people of all nations and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to do everything I have told you. I will be with you always, even until the end of the world. In other words, as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I have been commissioned by Jesus to seek the lost and to spread the good news. Well, now, before we talk about how we can do that seeking job, let's consider what Jesus says in our reading from the 15th chapter of Luke, which basically has three parts. First, there's a couple of verses of introduction and then two parables about seeking the lost. First, we learn that tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. And then that the Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling about that. What were they grumbling about? Because Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. This kind of table fellowship was an issue because it demonstrated how Jesus accepted even those scoundrels. You see, the tax collectors... They were not the IRS of Israel. They were Israelites working for the Roman government to get taxes to pay the soldiers that were oppressing them. So they were collaborators with the Roman government. And sinners, well, those were people who were outcasts. They thought he ought to reject such people, but instead he embraced them. Well, you remember earlier in Luke, Jesus says, I didn't come to invite good people to turn to God. I came to invite sinners. So, in response to their grumbling, Jesus tells us two parables about loss and about finding. The first parable pictures a man at work. He's got a large flock, a hundred sheep. But one of the hundred is lost. And Jesus asked his listeners a question about that Fairly well-to-do shepherd. That's a big flock. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? Well, usually that kind of rhetorical question will get a nod and yeah and answer. But wait, no, a practical owner of 100 sheep would not leave 99 by themselves and go search of one lost one. An ordinary shepherd would do kind of a quick cost-benefit analysis, a risk analysis, and I say, hey, we've got to cut our losses. But God is no ordinary shepherd. So God's response is extraordinary. When God led the prophet Ezekiel, for example, to condemn the bad leaders of Israel, he used that shepherd metaphor for them, those kings saying, I, the Lord God, say you're shepherds of Israel are doomed. You take care of yourselves while ignoring my sheep. Then God says he will, he will be the shepherd. The Lord God then said, I will look for my sheep and take care of them myself, just as a shepherd looks for lost sheep. I will be their shepherd and let them graze on Israel's mountains and in the valleys and fertile fields. They will be safe as they feed on grassy meadows and green hills. I promise to take care of them and keep them safe, to look for those that are lost and bring back the ones that wander off. 
to bandage those that are hurt and protect the ones that are weak. Well, the second parable, the second parable here is the only New Testament parable to picture God metaphorically or allegorically as a woman. In this case, a woman at home. She's lost one coin. Now Luke tells us it's a drachma. Well, that's a little less than a denarius, and what you need to know is that it's that's about a day's wage for an unskilled worker. In contrast to the shepherd, who had lots and lots of sheep, could do without that lost one. This is a poor woman who cannot afford to lose even one of her ten coins. Neither the parable about the shepherd seeking his one lost sheep, nor the woman searching for her lost coin ends with the finding. Both parables end with rejoicing. In the story of the shepherd, when he finds it, he's thrilled, puts the sheep on his shoulders and arrives at home and says, celebrate, I found my lost sheep. In the story of the woman who's lost the one coin, when she finds it, she calls together friends and neighbors and says, celebrate with me. I found that lost coin. She throws a party that, if you think about it, may have cost more than the one coin she found. In both cases, what was lost being found is such a big deal, it's an occasion for extravagant celebration. In both cases, the joy of finding the lost so marvelous, so wonderful, that it called on others to share that joy. Neither the shepherd with the sheep on his shoulder or the woman who's found her lost coin, neither one of them did a little happy dance by themselves and said, oh, I found it, I found it. They invited friends and neighbors to share that joy. Think about it. When something wonderful happens to you, do you just quietly keep it to yourself? Well, maybe if you won the lottery, but <laughs> um, a lot of other happy things, even if it's, it's good medical results or something, aren't you likely to call somebody or some of us would even post it on Facebook, right? Or at least that radiant look on your face would say, what you so happy about? <laughs> It would show somehow because your face would advertise your happy feeling. Well, Jesus explains that just as in these two parables, in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes heart in life than on 99 righteous who have no need to change. Doesn't you make you wonder, who are these people that have no need to change? Don't we all need to change? That's part of why we start each service with a prayer of confession. Because all of us are sinners who've come short. Well, Dr. Martin Thielen, is a, he's a Tennessee Methodist preacher, a former Baptist, and an author of several interesting books. There's one that I have called, What's the Least I Can Believe and Still Be a Christian? I've heard of Sunday school classes using that to, uh, as a study material. Another one is called The Answer to Bad Religion is Not No Religion. In another book, Thielen observes that churches focus so much on the 99, we forget our duty to seek out the lost. He suggests three ways that we, you and I can seek the lost. First, we can do what he calls lifestyle evangelism. 
You don't have to be a convincing, smooth talker to be a lifestyle evangelist. You just have to live the life of faithful disciple, a life of love and grace and compassion and kindness, integrity, forgiveness, a concern for somebody besides yourself, a concern for justice. The second way, way he suggests is what he calls relational evangelism. And again, you don't have to be a slick salesman. What would it take for us to close the deal today? You don't need to be, you just need to be willing and able to talk about your faith and what it means to you and what your church means to you, what God means to you when the occasion arises. And that means also that you need to be alert to those occasions because they do come up. The third way he suggests is invitational evangelism. He calls this come and see evangelism. And that's not complicated either. You don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew and have to be able to define all kinds of complicated theological terms. You just have to be willing to invite someone you know to church. It might be for worship service or one of those fifth Sunday sings like we have coming up at the end of October. Or it might be for the Christmas pageant. I'm sure Ann planning something wonderful. Thielen says that research studies consistently show about 90% of people who first visit a church do it because somebody they know invited them to come. But seeking the lost does not just mean inviting folks to church. That's a good start. But that's not all there is to discipleship. It also means inviting them to Christ. Well, Dr. Thielen wrote that he, he heard of somebody who was asked, is Jesus Christ your personal Savior? And the guy replied, no. I prefer to share him. It's not just mine to be shared. You see, the good news of the gospel is way too good to keep to ourselves. Thanks be to God. Hey, like the lost sheep and like the lost coin. Thanks be to God, you and I, we've been found, found. So go out into the world to serve God, share God's love, and to tell the good news of the gospel, to be in the world, not of the world. And may the God who knows all about us and loves us anyway, may Jesus who died for us, may the Holy Spirit who opens our hearts to faith go with you, uphold you, and bless you, this day and forevermore. <laughs>